The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibarion X, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to episode 300, and thanks to all those people who have sent me some very lovely messages leading up to this episode. The fact that after all this time, the show has and continues to inspire people to pursue their passion, and in some cases change the courses of their lives, is very gratifying and it's very humbling. So whether you've been with us from the very beginning or have just found us, I want to thank you for joining me on this journey. Now, when I was working as an editor at several photo magazines, I had the opportunity to interview a lot of photographers. Those interviews helped lead me to do this show, but one of the conversations that I most enjoyed back then was with today's guest, Lois Greenfield. Now, Lois is known as a quote-unquote dance photographer, but that really doesn't capture what she does. Her subject is really time. And as abstract as that sounds, when you look at her images, it immediately makes sense, and, and beautifully so. Her new book, Moving Still, is a collection of a recent work capturing motion, time, and the human form in ways that are nothing short of amazing. I love lingering on her images because she brings such subtlety and nuance to her photographs that are captured at one two thousandth of a second, and I find that inspiring, and I think you will too. Well, um, Lois, welcome, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's uh, I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you again. Uh, I've been a great fan of your work for forever, and uh, in in catching up with you and, and seeing what you've been doing as of late, I came upon this 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 quote of yours, which I just found really fascinating. And you say that um, the goal of your photograph is to confound and confuse, and I love that. Yes. Um, when I think about photographers, they're often trying to communicate something. They're trying to be really concise in, in their photographs, whether they're trying to tell a story with a singular image or with a group of photographs. But uh, tell me about that, 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 that quote and why, it really, why you feel it really sort of identifies what you're going for in your photographs. I work in a totally spontaneous manner, and I rarely know where I'm going. And I don't want to know where I'm going because for me the interest for all these 40 years is that um, I get beyond my imagination. I don't go in with a layout. I don't go in with a preconception and then execute it. You know, that has no interest to me. So the fascination for me is to just start somewhere and see where we end up. And that's, you know, a process of the improvisation I do with the dancers and the lighting and the props or whatever. So I really don't have a fixed goal in mind. And when I, so when I say something which is absolutely true, such as I want to confound and confuse, it's a retrospective opinion on what I made without any forethought. You know, hmm. it's just totally, I don't know where I'm going. And, um, but then when I look at the pictures that result from this process of collaboration with dancers improvising for me, um, then I, I see the result and I say, well, I don't understand this picture. You know, what is it? 
it's really presenting a mystery. It's not explaining anything. It's not documenting anything. And it documents the moment we shoot, of course. I mean, that, as you know, I never digitally manipulate. I don't recombine, reconfigure, strip things in, merge negatives. So it is a real document, but it's a document of my imagination, you know, as brought to life, you know, with the dancers. So by when someone is looking at the pictures, I don't want them to take away a fixed idea, a fixed concept or narrative or anything. And I never title my pictures anything other than the name of the dance, er, if it is a dance, it's the name of the dancer, the dance, and the year. So I might have, you know, 17 pictures of that all say the same dancer's name with different years. But I don't, there's, they're not representing any particular dance or movement for the most part. So I see the end result as being a mystery, so to speak, where the viewer senses that the dancer has some impetus or motive to be doing what they're doing. And I work on their expressions so that they look like there's a purpose, even though the viewer is not privy to it. And of course, there is no real purpose. It's, it's just the attention and focus. And that's true with their gestures, whether it's their movements or their hand gestures or their facial expressions. And all this is conveying some narrative, some mystery that really doesn't exist because what they're doing is jumping on a three count in my studio. It's, it's not a moment plucked out of any continuum. There's yeah. no choreography for the most part. And they're isolated moments that the dancer repeats or changes, you know, given the way it, the way the, the session is flowing. Again, I don't set out to create a mystery, but a mystery is what evolves. So we look at something and we know that it's true. We know that it happened. Had you been there, you almost would have seen it. You can't actually see what I'm shooting any more than I see what I'm shooting because I have to anticipate the moment based on the, the assumption that the following split second will resolve itself into some magical configuration. But obviously with dance photography, you can't see the moment, at least with the split second that I'm looking for. You can't see it, decide to shoot it, click the shutter, and that's that. It is a mystery for all of us. We don't see it until we actually see it. Either, you know, when I shot film, we saw it when it, it got developed and the contact sheets came out. And now, of course, we could see it within, you know, seconds of shooting it. It's interesting that you're photographing dancers, but you're not necessarily having them dance in front of you. That it's, and you've described it, that it's a collaboration between you and a dancer to the, to the, to the end of making a photograph. Yes, and these moments can only exist as a photograph for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're only visible as a photograph because our eyes can't register a two thousandth of a second. And that is my effective shutter speed. It's not my shutter speed, but it's my uh, the duration of the flash, which is the duration of the exposure. So the human eye can't perceive anything. It's be anything of that, uh, any, any slice of time that thin. It's beneath the threshold of human perception. So we can only see these moments, or most of these moments, as some of the things I shoot are more slow-moving. We can only see them as a photograph. They can only exist as a photograph. You know, it's like a portal to this slice of time that the human eyes are not um, capable of seeing. 
So it's actually, you could say, even beyond mystery, they're revelatory. I never use that word about it, but Mm -hmm. they are revealing the thinness of this moment that's being shot. So anyway, now we're getting back to the fact that these are isolated moments and they're performed for the camera. There's no phrase of movement at all. I mean, there might be a little phrase of movement, but it's not like most people think. Most people think I'm sitting there or walking around with my camera on continuous mode and I'm giving bursts of of shots and then later I pick one out that looks the best. That method, first of all, I don't shoot that method. I can't shoot that method with the strobes I have and I don't want to shoot that method. And interestingly enough, the more you shoot, if, if I were to shoot in continuous mode, I would be giving over my decisive moment to the camera. And when I teach workshops and all, I try to get the people to not put their camera in continuous mode. I said, why are you having the camera make the decision for what you want? And the dancer will do something wonderful and they'll burst off, you know, 10 or 20 frames. And then they'll say, Lois, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really get anything. And I said, I know. And I, and I was standing next to you and I saw all these wonderful moments happening. But you didn't get them because the machine was making the decision for you. That's something people think I do. But I can, not only don't I do it, but it wouldn't work if I did it. I do one phrase of movement. I take one picture. I wind my manual camera. I take another one. We check focus. We check focus with a ruler, you know, with a, with a tape measure. I mean, it's really an archaic, old-fashioned way of working, given, you know, technology today. The fact that these pictures cannot be part of a dance is because in a dance, any given movement has to have a preparation, an execution, and a recovery. But as you know, especially from my early work in Breaking Bounds and Airborne, there is no recovery. You know, someone does something and they land by the grace of God and pick themselves up and brush themselves off and do it again. So the moments that I tend to shoot could not be retrofitted into a dance because there's no continuity and there's no way for them to get in and out of these movements. And it's fascinating the way the dancers adapt to that because they're not used to working like that. They're used to being, to be given a fixed choreography that they will enact according to a fixed interval of time and with the music. I don't, I only put music on for their spirits because they're not really dancing to music. They're just isolated incidents. But um, it takes a while for the dancer to adjust to doing that. And then, of course, they're my collaborationer. They're my, collabor- they're my collaborators. We're partners in this venture. I can't over-direct them. I don't want to under-direct them. I want to see what comes from them and where it goes. I don't want to impose on them some abstract concept that may not work out. You know, we're both, you know, just peeling the onion or unfolding something. But how do you, how do you, how do you discover that, that, that sweet spot? Because like you said, you're not, you know, working from a shot list. You're not working from a sketch really are dependent on the dancers themselves bringing something to the table, but you still have some sense of, of, of vision. Can you, can you give me an example of how you came together with a dancer and achieved something together that otherwise would, wouldn't have happened? Well, first of all, I can answer the question about the sweet spot. I mean, because timing is everything. I found, and this is just an instinctive thing, that I was shooting either a little bit before the alleged peak moment 
of a movement or after. And most of the time, I shoot after. If you shoot before, the dancer is striving and on their way up to a position or up to a movement. Or, and if you shoot a moment after this alleged peak moment, the dancer is relaxed and is descending. So it takes the sense of effort and energy and strain out of what the dancer is doing if you shoot them when they're, quote, on their way down when they're relaxing, and, and this is, I'm talking about some micro millisecond. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something you can't even, you can't even parse it, but it's, it's still when I shoot. So I think that the timing, my decisive moment when I, I shoot is one of the most important determining factors of the imagery because I like dancers that are relaxed and floating, and you don't, you can only capture that moment in descent, so it's just a split second, but I think that's a really important uh, factor. And it's just something that's instinctive. But also, I never want anything that you can grasp with your eyes. So mm-hmm. if I'm teaching workshops and people are taking these fabulous jumps and people love things in unison where two people are doing the same thing, it's a mirror image. And I feel I've seen that and I know that. And I don't need to take a picture of something that I can see sitting in the audience at City Center or whatever. I mean, that is of no interest to me. So I already eliminate all these moments that is something I have seen on the stage or something I could see or something that is so perfect because the dancers are just doing it just the way they're supposed to do it. And most people love that. I, I don't love that. And actually, that's one reason why I don't I'm not a dance goer. I don't go to a lot of dance concerts or anything, and I'm not from the dance world. And I have this unique fascination with something because of how photography can transform it. I don't want to capture the dance per se. I'm interested in this merger, this hybrid of dance and photography in which the moment can only be seen as a photograph, and and it creates something new. Uh, but but tell me about the, uh, an example of, of that collaboration, because I'm really curious as to uh, how you communicate it back and forth between you and the dancer. Not so much what you're doing at the moment you're actually making the photograph, but what's actually leading up to that moment. I really don't, I'm not aware I'm telling them anything. If it's a dance, I mean, it's a really good question, and I don't, I don't have any kind of realistic answer for it. If it's a dancer I've worked with, for 20 years. And in, in, in my new book, Moving Still, there is a dancer I've worked with for 20 years. There, it's an absolutely nonverbal communication at this point. On the other side of working with someone for 20 years, they may, or 10 years or five years, they assume they know what I want based on what I've shot. And I don't want that anymore. So I have to actually undirect them because they've seen my books and they say, this is what Lois wants. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's, in a sense, what was improvisational, improvisatory, and somewhat radical in those books is now a commonplace. And it's already something that people are supposed to do for pictures. So I don't want that. But you're really asking me what I tell them. I, I, <laughs> I really don't. I don't know. <laughs> and this, you, you've seen the book? You, no, I've you seen, I've, I've, oh, I think I received it, yeah. Yeah, I, got, I saw some of the uh, PDFs. But a third of the pictures in the book are of a new series I call One to One. They're they're vertical pictures with dark backgrounds and one single overhead light. And a third of the book 
our pictures in this one-to-one -one series. They're not identified so much as one-to-one because -one it doesn't make sense. They're meant to be seen at a five-foot scale, which would put the viewer in direct relationship with the dancer. Um, and the moments are more moments in flux, even though it's stop action. They're moments that seem to be happening before your eyes, mm. as opposed to the way I look at my prior body of work, which is the photograph is a document, a, a surreal document, if you will, of a moment that was shot and now we have framed it. And um, But it's not happening in front of your eyes the way the new work seems to be happening. So in the new series, I worked with people I had never worked with before and from different dance backgrounds. Or sometimes, by the way, I work with people with no dance background or little of a dance background. And I really don't want to show them a picture. I don't want to tell them anything because I want to see what they're going to do, what's unique to them. And I also don't want to intimidate them because they come and they're kind of nervous. Will they be good enough? Whatever. And of course, they see what a relaxed, fun studio we have. So that fear dissipates. But the last thing I want at this point in my career is any picture that looks like a picture I've taken. So if anything were to develop that looked like that, I would move away from it. And what happens to the dancers and why I think I don't need to tell them so much is they, they know when they come to my studio, it's their chance to explore how their body moves independent of whatever dance company they work with. And they're free to make up steps and make up movements and play around. And that's a very creative place for the dancers to be in. It seems to really evolve on its own. Probably if I were watching myself shoot, I would see all the points at which I would say, hey, why don't you do it this way, do it that way, try this. And I ask my assistants, let's throw these balls in, let's throw a fabric in, let's throw feathers in we'll tell the dancer can you why don't you throw the feathers and we'll do this and why don't we put the fan on and we start this whole trial and error and bringing them over to the monitor by the way is really instructive because they're all creative people and it gives them ideas of what they can do and how they can change it and the key thing is I'm working with people who who want to explore movement and moments and feelings and they know I don't want a defined product. And so they allow themselves that freedom to create themselves for the camera. Do you find that you're, you're trying to constantly push yourself because you don't want to repeat yourself? Or do, or do you find that there were moments that, for whatever reason, that you were, you're repeating, you were repeating yourself and that you drew, grew, derived frustration from that? And then that led you to try to push yourself? Or is it... You know, I'm trying to understand whether it comes from frustration or whether you're perpetually trying to push yourself and not really waiting for those moments where you're frustrated or unhappy with what you're doing. Hmm. It's so, it was so great when I accidentally created the style in which I work and it was you know, not understood and it was radical for different reasons. And then it became commonplace or it became the norm. But what happens is I think the artist wants, artist looks for their own signature style but then we get trapped in it it's true people may want me to shoot in that style and so the artist then produces more work in that style say for i've done calendars all these years or for commercial work or they like this picture they want me to adapt it for their 
commercial product or whatever. And honestly, I can look back and feel, you know, I, could, I can look at <laughs> 10, 20 years of work and say, I've shot the same picture, you know, 10 times in, you know, for 10 different purposes. So that's one thing. And then the person is happy with their style, but they want to move beyond their style. And it's hard. So I certainly went through a few years of trying different things, but there was always this gravitation to pull back into the way I was doing it. So, and I, I think other photographers and artists experience that, well, it's, you know, once something is ingrained as, you, as one's unique sensibility, how do, you, how do you move to another sensibility? Finally, you know, I, I chanced on this other approach, which I think is, is very different from the first one or the second one, which is more about the dancer um, succumbing to gravity or pulling away from gravity or eternally floating weightless, you know, w without gravity. And I'm definitely not, you know, I think you also just, it, the idea becomes saturated. So in my mind, you know, I've, I've done it and I, I just don't want to do it again. And, and it's also a way to, to weed out what you don't want in a shoot. Because anything I've done, of course, I, I still pick up the same themes often. But it's something I would normally say, I've done this. Let's move on. It's a great shot. You're doing it brilliantly. I don't need another picture of this concept. So, and, and then you step into uncharted territory. And in my case, I changed some of the variables. And this new series is just two years old. It started um, in, in 2013. And I decided that I would make a series with all the elements the same, as opposed to the rest of my body of work, where each time I go in, I try to make it different, lest people think all my work looks the same. And so it was a little aha moment that I said, well, if I keep everything the same, then all the, the differences between the shots will be more apparent. So I, I, I just reversed everything. I made a dark background with an overhead light and making it vertical, which means the dancers were not going to travel laterally. Mm -hmm. And they're all going to be solos. And I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I'm really, I'm really thrilled with it. And, and they're all very different. Actually, you know, even just the change of lighting makes it very different. I want to go back a little. You, you started your career as a photographer, as a photojournalist. You were doing a lot of work in Boston and eventually in New York. But it was it was a presentation um, by Dwayne Michaels that really was a catalyst for your path as a photographer. Tell me about that, what, what you heard and saw when you heard that so early in your career and why it made such an impact on you. What had the most impact on me was not actually the pho photographs, but what he said. So he, he was speaking at MIT, and I went to hear him. And, of course, MIT was you know, with Minor White and the, the uh, zone system and all that. And, uh, and Duane was shooting 35 millimeter. And a student would say, well, do you shoot the zone system? And he'd say, what's that? And everyone would just, you know, freak out. And um, he said, if all your life means to you is water running over rocks, which was a prevalent subject in the early 70s, um, then photograph that. But he continued, but for me, for Dwayne Michaels, the moments I want to photograph would not have existed if I hadn't created them. 
And that thought, even as I was running from riots and rock concerts and whatever and had no interest in dance or in studio photography or, or anything like that, that thought got lodged in my brain and was the biggest single influence in my photography because the, the, the moments I'm photographing, as we said, you can't see them, but they also wouldn't exist. You can't go to city center and see these moments. They only exist because we created them, and they also only exist in the medium of photography. So I, I was just, that was the most. And my first show in 1992 at ICP, I was so pleased that my show was downstairs and Dwayne Michaels' big show oh, was upstairs. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so interesting how one sentence or one thought can be totally transformational. But actually, too, I mean, I, I had this problem of photographing someone else's art form because when I started to get assignments to shoot dance, I was acutely aware that I was photographing, you know, a work of art made by someone else. Now, obviously, the photographer has more say, so to speak, in photographing a moving dance than a photographer who's photographing a Picasso canvas. But I really felt this is, I'm documenting someone else's art form, which is fine and dandy, but it wasn't what I wanted because I wanted to create a, a fusion or a hybrid to have these two media, you know, duke it out or, you know, go hand in hand. Because everyone says dance is so photogenic, and all, and it is, of course. But if you think about it, there really, there's a dynamic tension between a medium that wants to, you know, stop things and, and dance, which is photography, and dance, which wants to have movement go and uh, according to the rhythms of music. And the, cam the camera has no rhythm of music. We have our, our guillotine shutter. And, um, and then we take something that's happening in 360 degrees of space and transpose it into uh, a two-dimensional square rectangle, whatever. So, I mean, they're absolutely antithetical, and, and it would be, you would think, a combative relationship. But because dance is so photogenic that people think they go hand in hand, and that irritated me because I wanted to have this be, I wanted the tension that would be created by putting two media together that really didn't fit together. Did you have a specific moment or a, a series of moments that when you realized that you had gotten there, that you were able to create images that were unique to who you were and how you saw rather than a documentation of someone else's artwork? When was a moment when you realized that you were bringing your own unique voice to what was happening in front of the camera? I started experimenting with strobes which you know, I never studied photography or, or work with them, but I wanted, to, I wanted to see what would happen with personal collaborations and not just shooting dress rehearsals. So what happened was that in using these strobes, I, bar I borrowed a Hasselblad camera, which is a square format, and it's a very unnatural way of seeing, frankly, I think, in a square. I think we see in horizontal rectangles. And it's also an, uh, not conducive to photographing dance, which certainly happens on a rectangle, rectangular format. You know, so what happened was I worked with dancers and I asked them, do not dance. You know, let's just experiment. Let's, you know, just jump around. Nothing with costume, nothing with choreography. And because I was using this camera where the image wasn't even reversed, and the square format 
would would chop off perhaps part of the dancer's limbs, whatever, I got images that were totally startling. So it was really just by chance and actually not an unchance and unfamiliarity with the camera and empowering the dancers to just make up moments, really these high-risk kamikaze kind of moments. And um, looking at the resulting contact sheets, I knew I had just, I mean, I didn't know that they were good or bad, but I knew I was doing something different. And at first, or how do you show someone a dance photo where arms are cut off, or legs are cut off, or someone's upside down, and someone's half in the picture? Um, but luckily for me, people like that. And I had sort of invented something new quite accidentally. You said earlier that one of the things that you're not doing is capturing the, the peak moment, that you're looking for the moment right before and right after. There's something else that you said in which you say that... Um, that you're choosing a moment that you haven't seen yet. And I love that because it, it speaks to this whole idea of anticipation in photography, which is something mm -hmm. that I relate to completely when it comes to street photography. Because when I'm out in the street and I'm shooting, sometimes I see the potential of a moment. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the people that are on the street, the environment, and I'm, I feel like there's a potential for something that's about to happen. And, and it's about me getting myself into a position and preparing myself to, to capture what I feel is about to happen. And I feel that that's what you're speaking to when you're talking about photographing these, these dancers is this sort of visceral feeling that you have right before you press that shutter release button. And, I, and I'd love for you to explore that a little more with us. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is just like, you know, street photography in that sense. And I, I, I don't know what to say about it, though. I mean, it's just, I could say that I find that the moment I shoot, that's what I, I, if I shot the same movement a few times, which we do, I will invariably get some microsecond, you know, more or less of, the, of that broader moment that I'm shooting. And it's hard to jostle me if, some, if an assistant says, oh, well, why don't you shoot before or later, whatever. It's almost hard to jostle my instincts to shoot that. But I have much less to worry about than you have on the street because the dancers have all been put in a certain light and we focused it and they, they perhaps are repeating or changing something. I have plenty of warning, actually. You know, they're just going to go. But on the street, everything is changing every second. You know, the light in the city is changing. Someone could walk into the frame. It's, it's the same microsecond that we're each going for. But I think you have more elements that you have to pull together. And also in the studio, we do repeat it. And I mean, I actually, I only really privilege the, the moments that are virtually non-repeatable. Because if something is infinitely identically repeatable, then it's more of this codified vocabulary of something which we've seen before. So I think you have harder on the street than I do, for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. One of the legendary photographers was um, Barbara Morgan, who just did this wonderful uh, photography of dancers and, 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 and dance. And I, I wonder about her influence on your work and, and whether you had ever had the opportunity to ever meet uh, and, and, and talk with her. 
Well, she was an influence on my work, I think, as a forerunner, you know, a pioneer in that, and in a pioneer in transposing a dance to a studio environment. You know, it was a stage environment, and then setting up the pictures of moments from the choreography. So she certainly was, and I did have the opportunity to meet her and write about her. I used to write about photography for the Village Voice and interview. I interviewed Cortege, I interviewed her, I interviewed Lartigue, I, um, some other people, so of course Dwayne Michaels. Um, and that was very interesting. I'm not sure she said anything that was any kind of helpful hint, but I did realize, you know that famous picture, she did a very famous picture of Martha Graham, and the dance was Letter to the World. And Martha Graham is doing an uh, arabesque, and she's got one hand on her forehead. She's representing a, a poet, and I forgot at the moment uh, which one it is. And so she's doing an arabesque, and there's this swirl of a skirt that's going up. And, and the tip of the skirt, you know, goes in a slight arc at the end, and it's one of the most famous shots in dance photography. When I was doing the documentary work in theaters, I realized early on that it was the use of fabrics that actually denoted the movement. Because if, if you look at that Martha Graham picture and there's no skirt, it's a static shot of a dancer doing an arabesque. But the skirt shows the trajectory of the limbs. It shows because it's flipping up that she had had her leg higher and now it's coming down. And I noticed that I was drawn to those moments as you know, during the dress rehearsals, I realized that actually the dancers are embodying the passage of time. Because how do we see the passage of time? We can see the sun go down and the moon come up. But for the most part, it's really hard to capture time. I mean, in, in the landscape and in, in the, the global way, yes. But with, with people, the fabrics often trace the trajectory of the movement. And that expands the time base of what you're looking at, which is really interesting. So actually, I often think that I'm really photographing time, or I'm sometimes I think I'm more interested in photographing time, and that I use the dancers to give time a substance and materiality. Yeah, because I, I look at those pictures, and I don't see dance pictures. I experience something else quite in a very visceral way when I take a look at your photographs. If they were just pictures of dance, I, you know, just like, you know, a lot of average photographs, I would just kind of like, you know, move move through the images. But I end up lingering on your photographs in, in a way that I don't do with a lot, a lot of other pictures. And I think part of it goes back to what we were talking earlier about this, how you uh, uh, strive to sort of confound and confuse a little bit. But it's also that mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're I, I, I hate to use the word freeze, but I'm, 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 at, a, <laughs> I'm at a loss for, for, for a better word to describe it. But you capture something that is, it's elusive. There's something magical about it. Because you, you, you reveal something about the moment, as you said, that is impossible to see with the human eye. But I know that's there. And I'm just... Uh, so captivated by the fact that you are able to see in that way. Because I think photographers are often, you know, often trying to capture slivers of time 
But when I take a mm-hmm. look at your pictures, it seems like you're just uh, a wonderful artist in terms of uh, like a painter or a sculptor that is putting together all these small, infinitesimally small elements together and making something really beautiful. And I know you're only working at two thousandth of the second, but it seems so uh, just masterful, masterful in terms of how it's all put together. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes I feel it's just like I'm working in a sandbox. I had skipped kindergarten and I've been making up for it ever since, you know, that mm-hmm. if I had had that year at a sand table or water table, I might have become a lawyer like the rest of my family. But I think I have this strong need to play and experiment and make a big mess, throwing things. And, and I also don't like to plan. I mean, it's actually the way my psyche is structured. I think I scramble a lot of things. And um, as opposed to being linear or in my thinking. So during a shoot, it's, um, I always describe it like a careening vehicle, actually, where we, we don't know where we're going. We go down, you know, some path and then we're stuck and then, you know, somehow. But wherever we end up, we don't know where we're going. We don't know how we got there. But by the end, it's where we were meant to end up. Yeah. So, um that's a sort of <laughs> crazy way of saying it. But what I'm trying to say is I don't – you were saying how these images come. Maybe because I – it's it's a nonlinear experience. And, and it's also – I mean, frankly, it's in the hands of the gods. And I'm using gods in the plural. Yeah. Because if you throw a fabric or you throw – we have these styrofoam balls. We throw whatever it is. You can't control it. It's not a still life. You can't tell the ball where to be and you can't – you know, you, you can't tell the dancer – exactly be this when the scarf is that way and it's what's what's really so exciting for all of us is when we get a picture which is absolutely impossible impossible that how it could have resolved itself so perfectly where the scarf is just doing this or the other elements are just so perfectly um that's why people think i i do photoshop but i don't um and i have pictures to prove it where people are being hit in the head with you know whatever they think i may have stripped in you know, I never thought of this before, and it sounds a little um, highfalutin, but now that we're talking about it, I feel I have a reverence for these moments that I perhaps instigated. I didn't, in a way, I didn't create it because they're subject to chance. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I'm trying to figure out what it is about your pictures that I love so much, and I think it's, it's that, that you're open to the randomness, that I, I look mm-hmm. at other pictures where I feel like every little thing about this thing was controlled. And I can look and I see the photographer in that, in, in that moment and I can appreciate it for all that it is. But then I take a look at your photographs and, and I see, man, there are things in these photographs that she, she or the dancer couldn't possibly control. And the fact that you were open to that and that you welcome those, those elements into your photograph is, is, is something that I really love. Well, it creates a dialectic that, you know, is both gratifying and frustrating because part of me is super controlling. Like I said, I like a certain expression, a certain gesture. I like this, the um, hands to look sculpted by Michelangelo. I like the face to look angelic. And, you know, I can keep trying to direct for that. And then once you introduce a mirror, which I love to use mirrors or, you know, a fabric, whatever, that's totally out of your control. So I'm trying to take a picture controlling half of it 
and then just letting the other half go to something that is completely out of my control. And that's, that's exciting, actually, because when you think about, you know, your street photographer back when I did journalism, I had less control over the subject. I had no control over the subject. I had control over where I was and how I exposed it in the moment I took. But it's very different. You know, that required crafting a picture out of something that you could not impose yourself on. Whereas in the studio, I, I can light it and tell them and do everything, you know. I guess I'm saying that there's a, I long for that situation where I don't need, where I don't even have the opportunity to make suggestions or to, to guide it and shape it. It would frustrate me, of course, not to guide it and shape it, but it would free me from the role of being a director where I had to guide and shape it or else nothing would happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a dialectic and I guess they both feel good. You know, you could say, oh, thank God I, I can control this. Or you can say, oh, I'm on the street. Thank God I don't have to tell them what to do. They're just going to do it and I just have to take a good picture of it. And then when you put them together, a picture which is 50%, well, a certain percentage under your control and a certain percentage out of your control. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's fun. It raises your heartbeat a little. As you mentioned, you don't use, you're not dependent on Photoshop to make any of this stuff happen. But, in, you know, in, in the last, you know, uh, in, in the many years that you've been shooting, there's been a lot of changes in terms of uh, technology, in terms of digital cameras, uh, in terms of lighting advancements. And I'm wondering, um, even though you're not dependent on Photoshop to create these images, have any of those technologies, be it with cameras, with, with lighting, that has helped you to pursue your vision? I don't think so. Let's see. I mean, I can't shoot continuous anyway because of the recycled time of the strobes. I can't use autofocus because it will not be a responsive shutter. You know, anytime I try a, uh, I'm a, wait a second, I don't, I don't know about the DSLRs. I'm not working in that at all. But in the medium format, if I try the automated cameras, there is a time delay between finding the focus or the light or whatever and when and clicking the shutter. So that doesn't work for me. Um, my old 500 CM camera from the 80s is, I believe, and I've been told by the industry, the most responsive shutter. So I can't really take advantage of all that stuff. And frankly, I, I find it confusing. So seeing now, I shoot digital capture and you do have better communication with the dancers because in the old days, you'd have a Polaroid. And that Polaroid had, what, a two-inch square photo on it. And you put a loop on it. And that's how you communicated to the dancer what the picture looked like that you were shooting. And it worked, you know. <laughs> but it's obviously easier to communicate by looking at a monitor. That being said... You can also, of course, take more pictures digitally, but I can honestly say I don't take better pictures. I can't say that shooting digitally has improved my pictures in any way. Tell me about the, your, your latest book, Moving, Moving Still. This is your third, third book, and putting together a book is always a challenge. So tell me about the vision for this book and what was one of the bigger challenges you faced in putting it together? So this is the third book I did with William Ewing. And he 
is the curator of it, so to speak. It's, in other words, the juxtapositions in the book and some of the selections were guided by his way of laying it out, which is really interesting. He created a duet virtually between the picture on the right side of the spread and the picture on the left side. And it was interesting. Even there were dancers from different companies that were juxtaposed like that and made into a little narrative. What was challenging was going back over, it must be, what, 30,000 images? I can't even count them, but we went back to, well, probably, you know, to the mid-'80s and included some of those pictures because in some ways, in many ways, the book is a retrospective, but at the same time, it's the introduction of that new style, uh, the one-to-one series, which comprises a third of the book. So it's, there's more variety, and um, there's no real logic. I'd say each photo or each pairing has its own you know, special, well, I'll call it a dialogue between the pictures, but that's really not what it's about. I don't know if I'm the one to make a pronouncement on what how the book is is perceived by people. But, um, well, first of all, this book is primarily in color. And the other two books, you know, probably remember, are in black and white. And, of course, the pictures were the square format with the, the, the negative border on it, which became a dramatic element. And um, this book is primarily color with a little throwback of black and white. The, the dancers are no longer contained in the square because um, once I went to digital capture, there was no negative border. And that, that ceased to be of interest for me. It was, it was so nice to present new pictures like series with mirrors that may have been initiated in the early books but really became more prominent. So, for example, I've always been fascinated with mirrors. And what I like about working with the mirrors in the studio context is the camera offers one point of view. But if dancers are holding mirrors or jumping over mirrors or if they're in front of a mirrored mylar surface, it reflects off-screen space. Not only is it out of my control, the way we were just speaking about, but it incorporates it incorporates in the picture things that um, are behind me or on the ceiling or something like that. So it brings the off-screen space into the picture and it gives you multiple perspectives of what you're seeing. And actually speaking of multiple perspectives, when I shoot the dancers, I often walk around them or ask them to show me something from different angles. I don't like to be trapped in any proscenium point of view for what they're doing. And the mirrors help me do that too, because I don't know if other photographers feel in any way confined by the two-dimensionality of our medium, but the thought that I could show what's not seen, I could show you things that what the camera can see as part of the photo is very exciting to me. Um, Then the most exciting part for me about the book is the series which we spoke about called One to One. Is there a, uh, an exhibit that's going to be tied to this to this body of work? Yes, there's. Um, I don't have the the places and the dates yet, but there's. It's called the Foundation for the Exhibition of Photography, and they're going to be in charge of creating a touring exhibition for it, which will be all uh, vertical, five foot, hung on, you know, just 
hung on horizontal poles. And well, I hope to see that if it comes out here to to the West Coast, because I've, mm-hmm. I've I've had the opportunity of seeing some of your prints, uh, like at the trade shows. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's one you know it's one thing to look at at a screen or even in a book, but when I have a chance to stand there in front of a print, it's just it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience, and especially these these images printed big like that. That's that, that's I'm sure that's going to be a treat for a lot of people. Well, the fact that you get to see detail and texture and touching, and you you enter the dancer's space. But I definitely selected fabrics and other things that are very tactile, and um, and they do look best as a print. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean. Photographs are very vibrant on a computer monitor, but when you're actually looking at a print, I think it, it takes on another dimension. Are you still having fun doing what you do? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> if I weren't having fun, I would have stopped. <laughs> I certainly would have stopped. There's a lot of work you put into it, but uh, you know, I'm curious, curious as to you know what what keeps the joy in it for you. The joy is it's always a discovery. <clears throat> I, you know, if, like I said, if I went in with a plan and then I executed that plan, I would be bored. But the fact that every time I go in, invite a dancer in and we start working, I have no idea what the picture will be. It's discovery. You know, it's like going to the moon and let's see what's on the moon. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone someone you've long admired, or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, boy. I'll say Salgado. Mm, Sebastian Salgado. And yeah. his, yes, his, his early work. Well, I, first of all, I love and admire photojournalism. Um, it was something I thought I wanted to do and, you know, fell into this, and I'm thrilled with, with what happened. Um, but I, I really admire it. And that he can, that Salgado can merge fine art photography with um, the real world in an emotional, in a biblical way, in super artistic way, compassionate way, and passionate way. He he's so trans. He he embodies the best in the medium, and he transcends the limitations of photojournalism. So. And he's celebrating the human spirit, and and I admire all all that it took to take those pictures, which is true of of all the photojournalists that are out there. I don't mean to celebrate him over all the other super talented and hardworking and life endangering, you know, endangering their own life. Um, so maybe I just want to give a shout out to photojournalism. Absolutely. And he's a, he's a wonderful example. His story is, is, is phenomenal. Um, but where can people go to find out more about you and your work and your workshops and everything that you're doing? Well, my website, loisgreenfield.com. And you can see a preview of the new book, which was released a couple days ago. And it's called Lois Greenfield Moving Still. And it's a, uh, we have a U.S. edition and we have a rest of the world edition. Same book, just different covers. And that's available on Amazon or it's available on my website for people that want signed copies. And you can, there's a preview of the book, there are videos, there's um, articles on me, you know, you can get <laughs> a little cram course. And we'll have links to all this stuff on, on the website. So uh, check it out. People. And the workshops are on there too. Oh, great. The whole workshop page. Yeah. 
which I really love doing because people come and they think it's so hard and they think they won't know what to tell the dance, they won't know how to do it. And by the end of the weekend, they have discovered they can do it. It's not, you know, a mystified process. It's nothing that they can't do and what they do will come out of joy. And uh, it's much easier, you know, than they thought. And um, so that's always fun. I think anything any of us do that helps other people find their creativity is very uh, important. I mean, people that create want to share the joy of creation. Well, that's awesome. Well, Lois, thank you so much for making time for me uh, today. And you're, I know you're very busy. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for uh, sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining me. If you buy Lois Greenfield's new book, Moving Still, use our Amazon affiliate link in the show notes. You'll get a great price on the book and help to support the show. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our shows. So take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store and make a small contribution to the show. It goes a long way. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links to each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows on your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.